Hello and welcome to the ALC Par African Radio's discussion program. The discussion program brings together experts to reflect on a variety of current security issues facing Africa at local, national and international levels. Hello and welcome to the special ALC Radio discussion program. My name is Desmond Davis and my guest is Professor Fumi Olonishaki, Professor of Security, Leadership and Development and Vice President and Vice Principal of International King's College, and Professor Medan Tadasi, a visiting professor at King's College and the Home of Africa expert in governance and security. This program is to launch Africa Week at King's and to discuss the state of regional peace and stability in the Horn of Africa. Professor Olin can you please tell us why this Africa Week has been uh, established? Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Desmond. Uh, there are three key reasons why uh, the Africa Week has been launched. Uh, it's the first ever Africa Week. Uh, and Africa uh, is one region that symbolizes um, how uh, institutions or global organizations outside Africa engage uh, the continent for a whole range of reasons. Um, we have seen interests in Africa's natural resources, interests uh, that are geopolitical uh, in nature. Um, but Africa also engages the rest of the world in particular ways that are not often show, uh, showcased. Uh, thirdly, you also have a situation where Africans, uh, individuals, scholars, analysts, policy actors engage in this space, and we've never really pulled out a thread uh, strategically. So Africa is significant in many, many respects. But I, I, I think a very important thing, uh, reason why Africa uh, Week is being launched at this time is that King's has come of age. It has differentiated itself uh, from many other universities. And I, in fact, I, I, would, I dare say that it's the one institution in the UK that engages Africa robustly. Why? Because it has a center where Africans uh, mostly are uh, engaging their colleagues to produce knowledge that changes Africa. That center uh, links itself, aligns itself very closely with King's strategic vision. Uh, to make the world a better place by training future generations of African leaders who would study uh, Africa for the purpose of transforming the continent and deploying our research and education to serve this purpose uh, differentiates us from the rest of uh, the universities in the United Kingdom. So is there much excitement among uh, African students who are here at King's about Africa Week and yes. all the non-African students? Very much so. Uh, at the African Leadership Center, or in the School of Security Studies, School of Global Affairs as a whole, that is where you'd find uh, Africans, uh, still a small number of Africans at King's, uh, relatively, that's where you find Africans who are mingling with their colleagues from other parts of the world um, uh, on discourses relating to Africa and how uh, the rest of the world uh, engages Africa. There's a lot of excitement uh, about Africa. And our classrooms are filled with students, uh, both African and non-Africans, who are very interested in what goes on in Africa and research in Africa as well. So, so what progress has the ALC made? It's been around now for the last 10 or more years. I mean, mm. has it finally established a market kings? Uh, well, I would say that they, it's still a work in progress. But uh, when you compare the ALC 
uh, to where it was uh, about 10 years ago, I think even before then, 12 years ago when it was piloted, when it was incubated at King's before it was launched uh, in Nairobi in collaboration with the University of Nairobi in 2010, when you compare now to then, it's very clear that JLC um, has begun to make its mark. It's in its teaching, uh, the degree program that brings leadership to the core of it uh, and teaches in a interdisciplinary way, the way that it showcases uh, work in Africa as well as the rest of the world. But it's also the research. The, its own approach to research is fundamentally different and it's beginning to influence. And I have to, I, I cannot uh, complete all this without talking about King's internationalization strategy. Uh, as vice president and vice principal international, I have taken, I've drawn a number of lessons from how uh, the African Leadership Center has engaged through a leadership framework, uh, has engaged research, teaching, uh, and outreach, not just in Africa, but the rest of the world. And our new internationalization strategy is very clear in terms of the core values that it brings to bear. Uh, some of those core values, uh, especially cultural competency uh, and uh, global problem solving, those values are the core of the ALC and they're very much in sync uh, with King's own strategic vision. What sort of feedback are you getting from those you've trained? Are they making any difference now on the continent or you think it will take a while before that is registered? Yeah, we, we have trained uh, students along two tracks, uh, uh, for example, academic track uh, and policy track. You can already see our students that are working along a policy-oriented track uh, making uh, difference in the various ways. We have fellows who uh, are based in ECOWAS, uh, those who are based, uh, I think one at the World Bank, at the United Nations, yes. and we've seen those who work in government. You can begin to see the kind of core values that they share in their work uh, that uh, symbolize the fact that the training that they received from the African Leadership Center has been applied in those different places. The academics are beginning to set up uh, small uh, programs and making progress in the different academic institutions. But this was meant to be the project of a generation. Uh, yes. It's supposed to be for 30 years, and we're just about approaching mid-term, uh, in a sense. Well, let's hope that uh, in 30 years they'll be around, because you know, in Africa, we come up with these plans, and then by the time we get there, things fall apart. Well, I think that's what, uh, I think what, what, you, what I'm sure you know, uh, by the work of the ALC is precisely uh, to bring these core values to bear and you know, and the continuity is very evident in the work of the ALC yes. that is not just a plan for, for 30 years, but that you have a, a generation of people who would influence that place, uh, who would influence the continent and the rest of the world on Africa continuously. Uh, Professor Tedesi, the conference at the end of this week will be on uh, security situation in the whole of Africa. Why have you decided on this subject at the moment? Well, um, thank you, uh, Desmond. I think the Horn of Africa um, probably is a greater Horn of Africa if you include some parts of uh, the Great Lakes region and also yes. North Africa is that, one, uh, historically, um, the Africanization of the state itself has been very much, you know, well represented in, in that region. And also the Africanization of conflicts, including interstate conflicts. But um, at this time, uh, we are seeing that there are very threatening, in fact, more uh, threatening 
kind of military and ideological formations uh, that are, you know, uh, making Africa in general and the Horn of Africa in particular uh, vulnerable to, to international uh, advances and aggressive foreign policies. So the geopolitical dimensions are also uh, very much um, relevant in, in, in this discussion. So it exemplifies a different kind of uh, situation and, and, and a different threat, both at the global and regional level. Yes, because so how do you see the increased Gulf interest in the uh, on African states? I mean, they are more or less exporting their own rivalries to, uh, West, to East Africa, aren't they? Yeah, one, they are completely, you know, changing the nature of, you know, state-society relations in North Africa and also trying to weaken um, independent foreign policies, the sovereignty of those countries and their own peoples are being threatened by this new transactional and, and militarist approach of the Gulf states and also even weakening even the regional security mechanisms in Africa, particularly IGAD. But I think for one or two leaders, they prefer to have this sort of conflict. I mean, like in uh, Djibouti, Ismail Omar Gule has been there for since 1999, and he's been playing the various international powers against each other just to stay in power. Yeah, well, that's one of, unfortunately, that's one of the niches of African leaders. But, you know, Djibouti has become strategically very, very important uh, due to uh, the presence of uh, military bases. Yeah. <laughs> you have uh, an accumulation of military bases in Djibouti more than any other country in the world, including not the major players like the Chinese or the Americans or the French, mm. but including even the Japanese and, and the Indians. Yes. You know, and add to that the presence of the Saudis and, and, and the Turkey. So, so, so what is the are you saying about all the foreign military forces in the Horn of Africa, in Djibouti? To be, to be I think the AU was caught by surprise. It was not prepared for for this kind of eventuality. The AU itself is in in, in a process of you know internal reform, and uh, it didn't galvanize so far its uh, policy instruments to deal with the threats uh, that are you know, affecting not only the Horn of Africa, but also the Red Sea and the Mediterranean, if you, if you include Libya. Yeah. Yes, Professor Olonshakin, how do you view the uh, Middle Eastern uh, interest in the Horn of Africa, from your own perspective? Well, you worked a lot on it. Hmm. On the ground. I mean, to reflect on that, I don't think it's only the Middle Eastern interest. I, have you seen how I, I think all of this interest signifies uh, the, the importance strategically, uh, economically, politically, the importance that Africa holds to the rest of the world, regardless of who uh, that rest of the world is, uh, in a way that Africa has not yet come to terms with its own, with the depth of its own uh, strategic importance uh, to global actors. Uh, and the way I see uh, the interest of the Middle East, um, and I think uh, Professor uh, Tadese was uh, uh, touching on, on that, is the same way I see the interest of, of the rest of the world. We're just getting, uh, having new actors in the field. Have, uh, you know, a pattern has emerged uh, in which any actor, any global 
actor that wants to occupy a place of importance in Africa, in the world, uh, uses Africa to signal its importance. Uh, we've just had a situation where Russia, where Putin convened uh, African leaders. Yes. Uh, how many cases have we seen now? If it's not China and Africa, it is uh, uh, the United States and Africa, it is France and, and Africa. And in general, UK, uh, uh, Africa. We will have UK, Africa. So on what basis uh, would we not talk about Middle Eastern actors or Gulf actors and Africa? Uh, I, I think Africa's own realization of you know, the depths of its own importance is what is missing uh, in all of this. Uh, it's a very attractive place for a whole range of reasons uh, to all manner of actors. Uh, and I think that that's, that's what this brings out to my mind. Yeah. Yes. And if I may add, yeah, that's yeah, a very yeah. good point. Yeah. On, on, yes. on what she said, yes. I think even the whole geopolitical shift yes. uh, globally is being now played out in Northern Africa. That's why this is really critical to look at it mm. from, from different perspectives. But is it different from uh, the way Africa was used during the uh, Cold War? Is it a different ballgame now? Well, except that, you know, we have a multiplicity of actors. Mm -hmm. And unless you have strong institutions and institutional currents and policy currents at the continental level, you cannot fully grasp them. Yes, because Professor Onunshadi made a point that Africa itself does not realize it's important. And that's where the weakness arises. I mean, uh, Africa is important, but Africans themselves don't believe that they have that sort of importance in the world. Why is that? Well, it has to do with, uh, with the changing dynamics, but also in the type of leaderships in Africa, both at the continental regional level, but also at the national level. Yes, do you agree with that too, Professor Olun Shakin, that it's down to the leadership rather than the people themselves? Well, I, I think the leadership, leadership has always been an issue, and it's not, uh, it's, when you say leadership in that sense, I really want to separate the question of leaders, leaders from leadership. Yes. The way in which leadership has been exercised on the continent has always uh, been one that it's so state-centric, it's so leader-centric, and it's actually, it mirrors exactly how the rest of the world operates. And a continent like Africa that has been at the receiving end of uh, all sorts of global dynamics ought to find its own level and engage and have leaders engage with their people on the basis uh, of a common of a common goal. And that commonality, that mutuality in the ways in which leaders view their populations is what I think is missing. Going back to the absence, uh, to the weakness of institutions that Maidani was talking about, uh, the rest of the world has the luxury uh, of having all manner of leaders behave in all manner of ways because when you talk of places that have been able to keep their own institutions for thousands of years, yes. then they could do that. And when you have a rogue leader, it doesn't matter. But when you do not have any institutions to speak of because the politically recognized institutions globally are the ones that were created for you uh, by entities uh, or other interests that were not, and those institutions were not the, uh, built on the basis of uh, the needs of people uh, in that society fundamentally, then you run into trouble when you have uh, rogue leaders. Uh, and so even though Africa, uh, you know, poor leadership is not the preserve of Africa alone, and we should never really think that, uh, because that is not a fact. Uh, it is not the preserve of Africa alone, but Africa suffers a lot more uh, from poor leadership dynamics because it does not have it. It is 
uh, it is fundamentally weak uh, when you look at the newness of the institutions that were uh, transferred uh, to Africa as a whole. But Professor Tedesi, what role do Africans themselves have to play in ensuring that uh, leadership is strengthening the continent that will look after the interests of people? Well, that very much depends on the nature of the political space in, in different African countries. I mean, this was the same. And uh, public participation and popular participation in politics in Africa has, you know, gained some currency recently due to mass protests and the like. So there is now a tendency to redefine the social contract in many African countries, but that process is not yet, you know, consummated. So, I mean, popular participation, inclusive and representative political processes, and the involvement of the public in decision making would 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 improve a lot. But both poor leadership and and weak institutions have been conspiring against that, and it's just a project that is continuing to. It's okay. of course, yeah. so, so, so how do you view the Nobel Peace Prize that has been won by Prime Minister Abiy in Ethiopia? Does that make any difference? Well, I think uh, for me the prize was given I mean, as a sign of encouragement for him to do more. Otherwise, you know, as you know, even uh, the very, uh, you know, um, uh, cause of that award, uh, the Eritrean peace yes. uh, is itself in, 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 in a problem, even, even the border is closed and the political reform in Ethiopia is still, uh, you know, facing um, uh, serious uh, problems. So uh, I saw that as a sense of, uh, you know, uh, encouragement, you know, to make him do more in terms of, yes. uh, you know, peacemaking in the sub-region and, and solidifying some of uh, the reforms that have been uh, started. But again, you have to be always be um, uh, uh, curious when when the West, you know, tries to build you up. So uh, that's a different matter. Anyway. Well, I think it was an independent body that decided not the Western government. Well, I mean, everything is about power relations, it's about finances, who does the influence, you know, you cannot delink, you know, any Western institution from our interests, but yeah, yeah. Professor Olunshakin, yes. peace and security are dependent on good neighborliness. Mm. I'm not now talking about the Horn of Africa, what about the border closures in West Africa and other parts of the continent? How then can we move forward with the... Uh, African, the continental free trade area, if borders have been shut. No, I, I, I mean, I think uh, Desmond, you are asking some really fundamental questions. Uh, and it's amazing how there's so much of the same yes. uh, in the way that we respond to things in Africa. I think the Horn of Africa and the events uh, occurring in the Horn of Africa, uh, those events are symptomatic of a deep structural challenge that Africa faces, that it cannot organize it. Uh, it's become clear for some time, I think. I think scholars uh, have recognized that for a while, that the, the African continent uh, cannot be organized on the same basis as the rest of the world because its, its experiences um, are, are really deep-seated. And you have to really begin to disentangle uh, all of the historical issues that led to the ways in which 
uh, borders were drawn uh, in, uh, and look at the social, uh, the nature of social interaction uh, across uh, communities on region, regional lines in Africa. Uh, we need to, unless we look at all of those things and begin to study Africa deeply uh, and differently, we will continue to uh, to have the same sort of solutions that are not unnecessarily changing things. And of course, the Horn of Africa and what we see in, in West Africa or what we see in Sahel, the, the, the two regions that exemplify the challenge uh, that you talk about are the Horn of Africa and the Sahel. Uh, and we go in cyclical patterns. Uh, you know, so of course, the closure of borders will continue. It will continue when we look, take a narrow uh, perspective to solving that problem. Uh, and the fear of our own people. I mean, leaders' own fear of their peoples across the continent is a major issue there. And this is where my own challenge as an academic, uh, located in, uh, in an institution that is trying to study uh, regions uh, and part, this part of the world deeply, is that we need to really rethink uh, how we deal with Africa methodologically. We need to rethink the theories uh, that we use uh, when you know that they, we need to question very deeply some of the established ideas and frameworks that govern how we respond to a region like Africa. So the African continental free trade area is not going anywhere. Well, you can understand the reasons why uh, it can't go anywhere for some time because if there's not going to be a collective understanding of the uh, security and development challenges that we have, and if there's going to be a division. Uh, uh, along the lines that we've seen before, the same old agendas are going to be on the table, then who stands to benefit uh, from the continental uh, free trade area? Who, who stands to benefit ultimately? And if we're, not pulling, uh, if we're not pulling together collectively and understanding that it's not for one part to benefit and another does not, uh, I, I don't really see how that will become something sustainable. And unless you, you address the peace and security issues and also the political economy of several African states, then uh, you might not uh, see any fundamental progress on, on free trade or economic development. That's why the militarization and the internationalization of the conflicts in North Africa comes to light. Uh, yes, uh, Professor Tedesi, I mean, that's, let's talk about South Sudan. Everyone was excited when the country became independent eight years ago. Now it's falling to pieces and that uh, conflict is creating refugee problems all across the whole of Africa. How will that be resolved? They're supposed to have a peace agreement today, but I don't think they're going to get anywhere with that. But the problem with, with, uh, with South Sudan has to do a lot with the nature and, and, and course of the SPLM and the liberation movement. They were not prepared initially, uh, even mentally, uh, but they didn't also try to change their pattern of behavior to govern that country in a peaceful and, and, and democratic way. But again, uh, the peace process in, in South Sudan, like most of the peace agreements in several African countries, has been mainly externally and supply-driven, elitist, and they didn't involve even, even the population. So there were several problems that we see you know, uh, the, the peace process itself creating more conflicts and more destruction and, and displacement of population.
You're listening to the discussion program on the ALC Pan-African Radio. Stay tuned. Welcome back uh, to the discussion program. My name is Desmond Davis. We have a guest in the studio who would like to ask a question. Would you say who you are, please? Um, I'm Ekaikwe from the African Leadership Center. Um, thank you very much for the discussion so far. Um, on the, we have two points I'd like to raise and hear a bit more um, about. Maybe I'll begin with the latter point on, on South Sudan. Um, and I, I hear this point that has been made about um, how there were great expectations for what was to come. Yes. And uh, this idea that perhaps what we've seen so far has been a bit disappointing. But I, I want to hear from, uh, from our speakers here today as to whether we are obliged to expect uh, what we've seen, um, in a sense, could we possibly have anticipated that with all the challenges that South Sudan had faced um, with regards to its emergence, that there would really be such a smooth process into you know, the building of the South Sudanese state? Is, this, is it not normal to expect this sort of fractious beginning? To, to, its, to its existence. And the second point, I want to uh, go back to the, the conversation that was being had about the African free trade, um, the continental free trade area. And to say uh, that, of course, a lot of this is about uh, the creation of a, of a huge market, yes. uh, a, a huge market on the African continent. Mm. And there is a lot of contestation around that. Um, and whether we can have you know, what seems to be a utopian view of this, uh, this large market where everyone is in absolute, where everyone is in agreement and everything will run smoothly. Can we also not expect some contestation around access around that? Thinking also of the power relationships within Africa itself, the larger economies, the smaller economies, um, and the negotiations around that um, as well. Thank you. Well, as far as South Sudan is concerned, yes, I agree. Um, that there were higher expectations and uh, there were less preparations you know to meet those expectations but in the sense of uh, building a new state in africa and and of course you know in the united states declared that it made right you know um, south sudan's uh, independence i think most of the the problems that has to do with state formation and consolidation have never been uh, worked out uh, from 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 day one one has to do with uh, the competing uh, narrative narratives of statehood within south sudan itself they were not reconciled they were resolved. and two the political economy and the international uh, linkages with that mainly that of the united states and most of the peace processes, the recent ones, have been somehow um, diverted into a kind of a geopolitical and ideological game where, where the, the United States tried to, to use South Sudan as, 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 as a weapon against an Islamist regime in, 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 the, in, north. in the north. So my point here is that they were not free from geopolitical competition and from you know, um, Western interests and the South Sudan elite itself were not prepared, you know, to live up to the expectations of building a new state and creating this instability well, and, and a workable political formula for, 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 for well, the country. 
when I spoke to them, the SPLA people, they said, oh, we've got all these South Sudanese who are in the States who have been studying it or come back and run the country. But that hasn't happened. Not only that, you know, the SPLA initially thought that, like Norway, you know, South Sudan has oil and it can, or probably like Turkey, like Qatar, it can grow, you know, automatically. But they were not prepared. I mean, the complexity of building a new state uh, was beyond, you know, you know, the expectations and preparations of the political elite. So leadership again uh, comes to, to the picture here. Really. Yes, Professor Michel. Yeah, the, the, thank you. I mean, this South Sudan is an exemplar uh, when it comes to how we, we as the international community went straight in with a model that we assumed we could superimpose on that country and that it will work. And how do I, what do I mean by that? We went in a top-down, a typical hierarchical way. We midwived a process in which a liberal peace agenda was set upon the people of South Sudan. We asked them, even before we asked them, do you want to stay together to become, uh, you know, a, a nation? And we, before we asked them on what terms will you, will you be uh, a nation or a state together, we first tied them around uh, the leaders that that uh, war had produced over time by having elections. And we did exactly what we would do elsewhere without looking at the context of South Sudan. I think had we tried to help those people and their leaders have a sense, at least have a discussion about their common future, their common destiny, long before uh, we tie them together through elections, we might have uh, had another set of results. When you look at the resolution, resolution after resolution, it was around the building of a particular kind of state. It wasn't around uh, forging a common, you know, and mutually beneficial future. And so having created a situation in which uh, those who bore arms and those who were at the center uh, of all of that contestation uh, for the state, having sealed the future of the people around a particular set of leaders and a particular rule, where how can we expect something different? We cannot expect something different, but more of the same, if that's what we did. Uh, yeah, we had heard that uh, John Kahn, he had wanted a, more or less a federation with the, the, the North. And that was what caused the problem. What you yeah, the New Sudan. Well, of course, I think the, the, the crisis in South Sudan can be explained in several ways, but one peculiar explanation that might help us understand the problems of South Sudan and its transition is the nature of the SPLM as a liberation movement. If you compare the SPLM with other liberation movements in Africa, both the first and second generation liberation movements, the SPLM remained with weak institutions, predatory, and the militaries. I remember one of uh, the leaders of uh, the SPLM when I asked him, "How do you? How often do you meet as as a leadership council?" He said, uh, "We don't. Not only that." When Garang travels to the US or the UK, mm -hmm. I mean, he literally took the SPLM in his briefcase, you know what I'm trying to say. So the institutionalization was not there. 
personalization was very, very prominent. So I think if we compare the, the challenges of transition in South Sudan, we have to dig deeper and look at the nature of the SPLM and the liberation movement. But, but Professor Olin that's the main problem in Africa, the personalization of leadership. Are we still going back to the old days when the chief had all the power and then he can now dispose of largesse or are we seeing that things will change eventually? I, I think it's partly why we're having this conversation because the 21st century uh, uh, space and the 21st century African, for that matter, as 21st century Africans, uh, do not give uh, do not give us the impression that it is possible to personalize leadership to that extent and retain uh, a place of personal power in the states that we're talking about. Things have changed a lot, and if I return to the point I made before, that even at the United Nations or, or the global the global community, we have not yet understood that even though we're talking about states, we should be talk, talking about states that have to be renegotiated differently uh, in a continent like Africa. We need to study the place differently. There is nothing that suggests about this moment uh, that we will get away with that kind of personalized uh, approach to leadership. Uh, a continent of uh, a billion uh, people and counting of an average age uh, of 19 and a half to 20 years uh, cannot accommodate an environment in which only one individual has is almighty, uh, has the almighty power, and has all the answers uh, to to the to the myriad of challenges faced by a new generation of people. The idea that we have old men mostly who hold the answers to the, the problems of a very young generation of people is at the core of the canker that we're dealing with. Yeah, and that's the point I want to make. I mean, but. Uh, they've been given the space to, to express themselves, the young people. We should, also not, we should also not say that young people are not being given the space. We, this is what the African Leadership Center uh, is about. There are many ways in which you're given that space. So short of going to a place uh, and taking the seat of power by force, uh, the, the forms of power, the basis of power that are open to young people are significantly more than what is open to those old uh, people who sit uh, with narrow uh, approaches and ideas in seats of power that are that are getting even hotter today. And what are the bases of power? It is the knowledge, the expert power that you have, which you acquire by studying uh, your problems and your region in a, in a radically different way. That is why cre the creation of new methodologies to how we think about Africa, study Africa, and how we challenge global institutions' uh, approaches to Africa is the first base of power. Second is the mode of organizing of young people. Look at social media today. Look at the ways you talked about borders earlier. One of the reasons why Africa's borders will remain porous, forever remain porous, virtually and physically, is because of the ways in which young people, young Africans and young people globally organize. That porosity of border is, you know, intellectually and materially and physically is something that is necessary to survival of this generation of people. Those are things that are not always accepted uh, in the textbooks that have constructed the states and systems in particular ways. So unless we unlearn uh, the things that haven't worked, that we continue to, to learn in the hot seats of narrow thinking uh, when it comes to leadership, unless we unlearn those things and bring new frameworks and methodologies to bear, 
which is what the learning uh, in this uh, great institution and at the African Leadership Center uh, in particular is about. Unless we do that, we cannot begin to talk about problem solving for Africa in ways that make sense. But Professor Tedesi, Professor Ulrich Shakin spoke about the uh, power of social media. Well, that's not the case in Ethiopia, is it? Social media is suppressed. People don't express themselves. Well, it is a case, but um, the social media, including you know, internet connection, yes, and also you know the the coverage of you know mobile phones in Ethiopia, comparing to to the demography in the country, is not um, that much to be appreciated. Uh, so, in terms of um, the monopoly of uh, telecommunications by the government, unlike other African countries like Kenya and Ghana, uh, the connection level is very low. Uh, but still, uh, social media did mobilize uh, the use in in the recent change, political change uh, in Ethiopia. But um, the introduction of new technologies and the role of the diaspora has never been studied uh, in terms of. Uh, political dynamics in several African countries. And in Ethiopia, when we say about the lack of insurance, we are not referring in, in the liberal sense. I mean, insurance need to be formed by the interaction between, um, you know, uh, uh, the political dynamics at the local level. So unless you frame and develop them through uh, you know interactions in terms of uh, politics at the local level then you might end up having superficial institutions so that process has been delayed for several reasons now Ethiopia is obviously in turmoil we'll see how how the political situation uh, developed the extraordinary speed with which as a new prime minister Right to change things yes. have um, somehow uh, accorded him with uh, prize and and appreciation, but trying to consolidate democracy and 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 link it with peace and security uh, remains to be a, a challenge. The point is that social media is a role, and space is now not fully controlled by government. As a degree bodies. Yes, we have another member of the audience to ask a question. Um, yeah, my name is Abiodun Alao from the African Leadership Center. I think what has come out quite distinctly from what Professor Donishaki and Professor Medanya have said is the fact that Africa will find it difficult to escape the contradictions that underline its existence. But what I think is missing so far in the discussion is the extent to which the narrative, the rhetorical narrative about Africa is actually being controlled from outside. Who consumes what you hear and what you listen to and what you believe? I think actually underlines whatever it is that is about your existence. I think this is in the discussion. Thank you. Actually, I think that's a very important because when I looked at the, the films, I said, Africa lost mind game. I mean, it's 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 who will control your mind? Who will control everything? And that's where we have a problem. So, Professor Onishaki, don't you think that our leaders, by refusing to talk to their people? further problems for the continent. Because in the West, the media is always there talking to the people. Of course, uh, what's the name Donald Trump wants to uh, 
reduce the power of the press because of, the, of, of what the press has done over the years. Thank you. I, yeah, it, it's uh, very, I, I, I very much uh, like uh, Professor Lau's uh, question on this. Is it that African leaders refuse to talk to their people only, or that African leaders uh, have incentives uh, to not, not talk yes, yeah, to their people? Yes. Uh, and those incentives are very much uh, externally driven uh, most of the time. But my point earlier when I talked about the basis of power those very people, uh, largely young people, the vast majority of them young people, is that African people are talking amongst themselves and they're having conversations with the leaders, even if it sounds like a dialogue of the deaf. And some of that, African leaders ultimately will be forced to talk to those people who have organized, uh, if you like, on the margins of the state or despite or in spite of the state or in spite of the leaders. Uh, and the way in which they're organizing is what I'm talking about. No, they, the people talk to their leaders. They talk to their leaders through protest. They talk to their leaders through the ways in which they continue uh, to try to dig out a quality of life for themselves on the margin of those states. And ultimately, what you see uh, happening is uh, leaders whose channels of influence uh, at home especially if they're not, and I'm generalizing, you know, very wildly here yeah, yeah. because uh, there are very few exceptions. But the fact that you have few exceptions exactly makes the point. Uh, so, so ultimately their basis will be eroded if they do not talk to their people. Uh, the external support, uh, the external support network as well will not be there uh, continuously. You mentioned Trump uh, in other ways. Uh, Trump and Trump's reaction to Africa says yes. it all, yes. uh, that if the external base is being eroded and the level of interest that you expect from your external partners is no longer there. Ultimately, the confluence of factors will force leaders and people, will force leaders to go to their people. But I, I, I want to believe that the dynamism that we see at this present moment is part of the process uh, of changing Africa. It doesn't always seem like it. It's part of the process of changing Africa. And what the external world that Professor Law uh, is talking about, the multiplicity of it, the multidimensional nature of it is incredible when you look at it. It's vast. We look at state actors most of the time. We look at multinational institutions. We look at the global uh, bodies, United Nations, World Bank, IMF. But sometimes we need to look at knowledge institutions as well. It's also returning to why the Africa weak is that if we continue to produce the same kind of knowledge about Africa from outside and studying Africa from a distance and understanding Africa only in theory as an area that is of, of interest to researchers uh, who would like to make a name, who would like to research Africa because it's interesting, because they're a particular kind of state, then we are reinforcing the very uh, challenge. But when you engage Africa differently, and you begin to study that continent, and Africans themselves, for a start, are introducing how Africa should be studied because they have experienced it not in theory. They've experienced it in real forms. They understand the human condition on the continent. Uh, and therefore, you begin to put an interdisciplinary lens to it, but also a broad uh, theater of engagement that takes the views and the experiences and the voices of Africans uh, into account. Then we can begin to shift the dial a little bit, I think. So how we produce knowledge about Africa and how 
how we mm. talk about Africa within things and how we interact amongst ourselves on, you know, on issues concerning Africa must be an example uh, to the rest of the world. Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting point because how do you produce knowledge when you're based in, in an institution that is in the West, so in Africa? How, how do you reconcile these differences? I, I, I thank you very much. I think, number one, if we acknowledge that Africa itself does not exist in a vacuum, which is what we've been talking about, that Africa must interact with the rest of the world and we sit at the gateway uh, of that other world. Uh, the second thing we need to do immediately is ensure that Africans, those with a first-hand understanding of Africa, as well as those with an interest in changing Africa for the better, are sitting together in this gateway. Number three, that they're not just sitting together in this gateway, they are encountering the continent in the very ways which is what the African Leadership Center symbolizes. Yes. All right? That you bring those, those Africans are here, then they return to Africa. All right? And the Africanists uh, who are here uh, at Kings and in Europe understand that they can no longer study Africa in exactly the same way as before, and they have an interest in better understanding Africa and the challenges of Africa, and that is from multiple uh, perspectives. And bring those perspectives in account, uh, into account uh, as they uh, engage Africa. Then, therefore, uh, you know, things begin to change because in the quality of the knowledge that you produce makes an impact, and not just the knowledge for the sake of knowledge, which I'm not saying you can't research for the sake of research. Yes. You can, but with the kinds of challenges we've just talked about, in the Horn of Africa, in Sahel, in the whole of Africa, I do not think that there's luxury to study Africa like strangers. Uh, and that's what we're trying to alter. There's another question from a member of the audience. Um, hi, good afternoon. My name is Adiel T. Depoli. I'm a PhD student at the African Leadership Center, King's College. Um, I had a question, you know, it's interesting you mentioned the diaspora and you mentioned that not much has been done on the study of the diaspora. Um, however, there is an emerging body of literature that looks at the diaspora and especially in regards to their contributions either to conflict or peace building. Um, and there's so much evidence on their input and their influence, especially around the area of remittances, you know, that's where the larger debates are. Um, I'm just bringing it back to the topic of today or the, of this week, which is the Horn of Africa. There is ample evidence of, you know, even the Somalian diaspora, the South Sudanese diaspora, the roles that they're playing in these countries at the moment. So my question um, is, in what way do you think there is a gap in how the diaspora being engaged by these home governments, especially, and how can their presence or their capacity be harnessed? especially in the larger debates around Africa's development um, in the current global context. Yeah. Well, uh, beyond the, the monetary aspects, the political implications of um, the diaspora in the Horn of Africa has been increasing you know, phenomenally in, in the last several years, uh, uh, particularly in Somalia, obviously. And um, I, I use it to say that the two new, two new elements in, in Somali politics is the Islamization and diasporization of politics in, in, in Somalia. To the extent that most of even um, the higher officials in, in the newly formed governments, not only in Mogadishu, but even in the regions, are from the diaspora, yeah, the diaspora. most of the ministers uh, and, and, and the like. So 
uh, in terms of the nature of uh, politics and the conduct of foreign policy, obviously the diaspora has been very much part of uh, the policy making uh, in, in Somalia. Uh, in Ethiopia, uh, most of uh, the newly, I mean, what I call as the returnees in terms of uh, the political actors after uh, the election of the new prime minister, most of them are from the diaspora. Obviously, more than 10 liberation movements which were based in Eritrea, but also they were part of the diaspora because they were going, uh, you know, back and forth from, from Asmara and the US. But from the literature and, and the research, I see a major gap. Although they are playing a most important role in, 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 in politics and even state and nation building, not always in a positive way, as the case of Somaliland shows and as the case of Mogadishu shows. So my point here is that the political space and the narrative is no more dominated or monopolized by states. Yeah, that's the point. Africa does not have, you know, poverty of fantastic ideas anymore, and the space is no more dominated by African governments and their Western patterns. That's why we need African institutions and Africanization of research. That's why we very much need institutions like the ALC. So, Professor Olin, you agree that the ALC has been playing a role and continue to do that in Africa? Yes, I, I still think that there's a lot, there's much remains to be done. But uh, what, what the ALC did from day one was to apply core values to its work. And the idea of the pursuit of excellence was, has always been taken as a given. But uh, African led ideas of change uh, and the independent thinking, as well as youth agency uh, that accompanies that, is something that has consistently guided the work of the ALC. So its approach to Africa is also one in which, as tiny as the uh, ALC is, it understands that the partnerships, that you know, deep uh, partnership building uh, at home and abroad is essential to the agendas, uh, the agenda of transformation, uh, for example. And that, uh, that you throw that seed, and that seed is you know, sown in the fellows that we train at the ALC, uh, whether at Kings or in Nairobi, is something that has been uh, a central part of that approach. But if I, if I may say that part of why this Africa Week is important is that we had tended to focus directly on Africa uh, far more than on Kings before. We are now at a point where we see a lot of interesting work being done at Kings. And that's why at the start I said when it comes to Africa, Kings is of age, has come of age. Uh, you see how the health uh, sciences, the health schools are engaging Africa deeply. We have other fellowships in health, like the Mari uh, Fellowship, the Mental Health Research uh, Fellowships, that has built deep relationships with African institutions and universities over the last uh, 15 years. We've seen the work that King's does in Sierra Leone uh, and the capacity development uh, for uh, medical students in Somaliland, which is, you know, more than 10 years. And, and that's why we think the ALC, it's important to bring some of the ALC's core values to the center of uh, how Kings uh, engages, Kings across the board, uh, across disciplines, engages Africa. And that's when we can begin to see that, in a sense, we want to be more than the sum of our parts. That if we're able to consolidate uh, our thinking in this way, we 
within kings and we engage collectively uh, the continent of Africa, therefore that agenda of making the world a better place begins to translate into much of what we do in politics, in peace and security, in health, in arts and humanities, and in digital, uh, in digital spaces. And what we do with digital technology at the ALC itself and the rest of kings might be one of the ways in which we can multiply uh, the impact of, uh, of ALC and kings in Africa. You have been listening to a special ALC radio discussion program to launch Africa Week at King's College and to discuss the state of regional peace and stability in the Horn of Africa. My guest is Professor Fumi Olonsaki, Professor of Security, Leadership and Development, and Vice President and Vice Principal of International of King's College, and Professor Medani Tedesi, Visiting Professor at King's College London, the Horn of Africa expert in governance and security. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the discussion program on the ALC Pan-African Radio. For this and other programs, please visit our website at alcafricanradio.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Radio ALC and on Facebook at ALC Radio numeral number one. For feedback on this and other programs, please send an email to info at africanradio.com. <laughs>